So I would like to introduce my mother-in-law. <laughs> but I'm not about to say how old she is. Uh, my mother in love is also with us today, Miss Peggy Glass. You don't give my mom away. <laughs> oh. She's got a beautiful voice, too. One day we'll have to show off. Will you pray with me? Gracious, oh, divine redeemer. Gracious, gracious, divine redeemer. We stand in front of you now and we do ask that you would breathe that spirit into us. That our mortal bodies would live and our souls have eternal breath of life. God, we ask now that you would renew our hearts and open our minds to you, to the word that you have for us. We give this to you as our offering and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. So we're still in this Lenten journey. I wanted to come and check out what Miss Kristen was up to over there. And um, this Ezekiel passage that we heard today truly uh, gives great testimony to our Lenten journey where we are in the valley of the dry bones and and in this desert experience, in this wilderness experience, we try to purge off or fast all that the world might try to offer and instead so we can sit in the quiet reflection, the wilderness, so that indeed we can be restored and our bones can rattle to the life of the Spirit and hear the voice of God say, the Spirit is within you, you shall live. Our Lenten journey I love how T.S. Eliot poetically says, it's during Lent that we proclaim the vanished power of the usual rain. In the valley of the dry bones, we can hear this voice of God, but yet our second scripture reading today tells us that even as we hear this promise, you are not of the flesh, you are in the spirit, that this internal conflict begins, that we have this conflict that can send us right back into this dry bone experience. Indeed, Paul in his chapter of Romans, in his letter to the Romans, especially in chapter 8, tells us that our humanity struggles with our divinity. I love the chapter of the letter of Romans, most particularly because it is the one letter where Paul writes where he's not really dealing with any church conflict. He's not writing it even to a church that he founded. And so we find in this masterpiece the most beautiful theological um, presentation in the purest form of Paul's, um, certainly his faith. And in this uh, letter to the Romans, and he, he speaks of this um, exile journey that we're on. He speaks of this Christian faith where we go from exile to promised land, this life, death, and resurrection experience. And he talks particularly in, in chapter 8 about the struggle of it all. And just when you think that he's going to use that old school tactic of guilt and shame to bring us to the cross and bring us to Jesus, he uses the poetic nature of love and spirit and this dance to bring us to that which is most precious. You see the very first verse of chapter 8, he says, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And the very last verse, 
he reminds us that even though we have this struggle, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is Paul's testimony, and right buried in the middle of those two verses, he states what gives him the confidence to make those two positive affirmations into our soul. It's in Romans 8.14, he states, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. Paul is saying that our spirit bears witness to the Spirit of God, that we are children of God. That is it for Paul. That is the bottom line of the Christian faith. That is the bottom line for his ministry. That is the very thing that gave him the ability to believe the radical inclusivity of God's love was for all people. All people are children of God. The core foundation of faith. But yet, the struggle remains. Even though we have this assurance that we're the children of God and the Spirit of God is within us, we have internal conflict. He sums it up best in chapter 7 of the letter of Romans when he says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. The verses that we read today and shared state the reason of this internal conflict. In verse 6, it says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. If we change our minds and believe that we're children of God, Paul claims that we can break through this flesh-driven slavery and replace it instead with a spirit of adoption. As we accept that we are divine, we set ourselves free from bondage. For Paul, the mind that is set on the flesh not only puts us in bondage, he says it's hostile to God. Our mindset pulls us away from experiencing the embrace of God. You've heard the story. Like the prodigal son, we fling from the safety of our home. We turn our back on God and in our independence seek to achieve and acquire that which is already ours. Prestige. We're children of God. There is no greater prestige, but yet we flee from the nest and our flight comes up empty. When our minds are on the flesh, we get pulled away from that which is right in front of us. The best term to convey what Paul is talking about when he uses the word flesh is ego. It entices us to take that bite of the world only to find its hollow ability to satisfy our soul. And then it's actually this newfound knowledge of good and evil that becomes the very thing that binds us up into this tug of war of flesh and spirit. Our mind gets focused on the law. What is right? What is good? What? And this focus on the law takes us off and away and sets us on the wrong path. But the spirit, when our mind is focused on spirit, it moves us to love. Paul equates the law to judgment, judgment to death, and spirit to love, and love to life. Indeed, this is the great complexity of life. Our own judgment of good and evil, right and wrong, keeps us in this never-ending race to be good enough to have that which is already ours. God's blessing.
And when we sense that God is among us, we reach for that nearest branch and we cover ourselves in the presence of God. And all the while, if we would just silence our mind, we would hear the voice of God whisper, who told you you were naked? This is such a great complexity of life. There's a, a comedian, he's kind of known as the German Charlie Chaplin, and he has a scene that kind of depicts this inner conflict. He comes onto the stage, and it's pitch dark, and one little lamppost goes on, and there's light. And this comedian, Valentin, he walks over, and he's got this long, drawn face, and he walks around the circle of light. And he's all, but you know, you can just see he's just all perplexed. And finally, a policeman enters the scene, and he says, what are you, what are you looking for? And he says, the key to my house. And, he's, and so the policeman looks with him, and they're going around and looking all through the light. And finally, the police turns to him, and he says, are you sure you left it here? At which Valentin says, oh no, over there. And the policeman says, well why in the, on earth are you looking here? And he says, well it's dark over there. <laughs> Our ego takes us on this wild goose chase. Robert Holden in his book, Happiness Now, uh, uses another phrase. It's from uh, a Zen master, Po Chang. It says, we're riding on the ox in search of the ox. That is our dilemma. <laughs> Robert Holden reminds us that the journey to true joy, true love, true happiness is not a journey of physical distance and time. It's one of personal self-recovery where we remember and reconnect consciously to an inner potential, a paradise lost, waiting to be found. It's revelation. It's enlightenment. It's the epiphany. He says, joy waits on welcome, not time. He reminds us that true happiness is faithful. It does not and cannot leave you. True happiness is something you carry within you in any given moment. You're either opening to it or withdrawing from it. As Jesus says... The realm of God is within you. But we must welcome it. We must welcome the reign of God. And we must welcome it into our world. We must believe that we're worthy to accept this love. And if we cannot accept or welcome love, we'll always attempt to question it, control it, and ultimately push it away. It keeps us from being liberators and working for the repair to bring God's reign on earth. Holden calls this struggle lack of acceptance, that you pursue what you cannot accept. And then the pursuit gets even more ferocious. I think the best way to capture this is from our dear friends over at Looney Tunes. <laughs> How about our friend Wiley Cody? <laughs> oh, come on, you know how this story goes. And we get drawn into it. We watch episode after episode, and we see the hysteria of this inner conflict. We see this, um, this coyote who goes against all of his own natural animal instincts in pursuit of the roadrunner. Instead, he, he tries all these weird contraptions and wild dreams and all this crazy stuff and tries to capture this roadrunner. And at some point, he, he, he ultimately represents the allegory of want, right? He's always hungry. And at some point, he gets to where his insatiable ego keeps him on his gerbil wheel. And then before long, he's addicted 
to the rush of it all. I mean, he's addicted to the pursuit. He goes on and on and chases and he splats and he, you know, crashes and he burns and he ends at the canyon. And at some point, you kind of want to holler out, <laughs> quit going to Acme Corporation. <laughs> now, I'm a businesswoman. And I got to say, it's peculiar that he always gets his little tra contraptions that always fail him from the same corporation. Because as a businesswoman, I would tell you, that wouldn't fly very long. That company would be out of business. There would be no thing. So it has to be operator error. Right? There's a self-sabotaging going on here. You have to ask yourself the question, what is it that keeps him in this race? Could he be wondering and pondering, what happens if I catch him? This is all I know. I've been doing it for 20 years. What would there be after that? There's the kill, but then there's the day after the kill. <laughs> or maybe he, he's afraid to leave this pursuit of the roadrunner and go settle for another bird. Because he'd be sitting there eating dinner with that bird. We're eating that bird. All the while, thinking about the one that got away, that road runner. <laughs> Couldn't even enjoy the, that bite. <laughs> or worse yet, what if somehow as he's in this pursuit, he has caught himself buying into the notion that maybe he's not good enough fast enough, smart enough to catch that bird. So in the race he stays, our egos are insatiable. They are never at peace. They attract and criticize us in order to motivate and strengthen. They believe that judgment buys better protection and better performance in our lives. Come on, you can do it, get a grip, try harder. But the spirit, Paul says, has a different view on everything. The spirit believes we're whole, in essence, the presence of love. When Robert Holden, in his book Happiness Now, offers insight into the way off of this gerbil wheel, he says something that sounds like heresy. He says, the best way to accept the love of God is to stop defining yourself as a sinner. He said, instead, claim the voice of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount where he calls you the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is the same argument that Paul is making in his letter to the Romans. He says, to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on spirit is life and peace. Accept that the spirit is within you. Accept your divinity. And then you will see Christ alive in you, the Spirit of God within your very being. And you will take those first steps of seeing God within everything else. As the liberated, you become the liberator. You begin tikkun alam, reparation of the world. Change your mind and you change the world. Love begets love. Judgment begets judgment. Judgment may crucify us but love remains.
there's a really cool passage in this book. And I'm going to read it to you now. It's uh, called The Question Time. And it's a writing that is in here right before they introduce the cosmic joke. Am I close, God? pleaded the pilgrim. Close? inquired God. What does close mean? Close, near to you, towards the front of the queue, chosen, special, pleaded the pilgrim. And God could not understand, yet God spoke. You are me. You are as close to me as you can get. How soon, my Lord, prayed the monk. Soon, inquired God. What does soon mean? Soon, quick, fast, how long before at last I am at one with you, prayed this monk. And God could not understand, and yet God spoke, nothing can happen sooner or later than now. Is now soon enough for you? Am I forgiven, Father, begged the nun. I have heard this word many times, says God. What does it mean? Forgiven, love, paid up, sins forgotten, apologies accepted, in good standing, pleaded the nun. God understood none of this except for love, and so God spoke, love is what you are, and all I know you by, nothing else is real. Am I deserving, the disciple asked. What is this word deserving, inquired God. Deserving, good, worthy, in the money, a bit of luck my way, well thought of by you, God, the disciple explained. And God was puzzled again, and yet God heard himself say, whatever is worthy of me is worthy of you, and whatever is unworthy of me is unworthy of you. Will I be saved, the priest called out. Oh, dear, sighed God. Here's another word I understand not. Saved, safe, protected, the lost and found apartment, defended, the priest cried. And God replied, save your worries, save your fears. You are saved because in truth you were never lost. Confused, I grant you, but never lost. It's a powerful reading. And the cosmic joke that he writes here is you are what you seek. If the image of riding on the ox, looking for the ox, describes our human condition. It follows that the image of opening blind eyes must describe the solution. Thomas Merton called this recognition the breakthrough to the already, one of the critical moments in the process of redemption. But you may say, I, I'm in this dry bone. I have not received this witness of the Spirit. I have not experienced what Paul speaks of, that I'm a child of God. You find yourself shouting, my bones are dried up. My hope is lost. I feel cut off. I want you to listen to Paul's reply. Perhaps it is the most puzzling and mysterious of all his sayings. In 826, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for us. Even when we're most further feeling from the spirit, the spirit is within us and testifying on our behalf. 
Paul recognizes that this battle continues and our perceived weakness makes this feeling of the Spirit impossible. But he tells us even in periods of that, the Spirit is the one who's crying out in that question, can these bones live? And our spirit within us testifies, oh Lord God, you know. God's mercy and love will not let us go. God's love never gives up on us, but waits at the door of our return to give us the keys to the manor. Junior partner in the business, you are my beloved. The spirit is within you. You shall live. Amen.